I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. <laughs> Hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? I Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Michael Patton. We've got uh, Sam in studio. We've got Tim in studio. And we've got Theology Unplugged. Hello, hello. Theology Unplugged, Ministry of Reclaiming the Mind Ministries slash Credo House Ministries. We're in a name transition right now. It's a slow name transition. It's a slow one. We're anticipating about a seven-year transition. Well, we're taking seriously what we learned in seminary about whenever you make a change, be very careful. So we're, we're taking it slowly. We are. <laughs> uh, we're coming to you from the Credo House. Credo House Coffee Shop, Credo House of Theology, Credo House Bookstore. Stop by in here if you are ever in Edmond, Oklahoma. It is the place to come for all things theology. So even make a trip up here sometime, you know. It's, or down. Or, or down. Or, or sideways. We, we've got, you know, I-35, I-40. Both come through Oklahoma City. That's why Oklahoma City is just the most hopping city in the entire United States. It's the center of the world. That's right. I mean, we have got our basketball team now, yeah. and we think we're something. Yeah. Watch out for the thunder. We think we are something on a stick, as Chuck Swindoll would say. <laughs> um, and Will, hopefully your son, will be a thunder player in about 15, 20 years, hopefully. Nice, nice transition yeah, into you. our continued illustration. <laughs> Uh, before that, this week, folks, enroll the theology program. It is starting either online or here at the Credo House. Two classes, Tuesday night, 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock, Introduction to Theology, 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock, Humanity and Sin. You don't want to miss out on that. You'll get a crash course in Christianity that you may never recover from <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we're continuing our series today, folks, on Calvinism. We started this last week, so if you have uh, picked us up right here in the middle, pick up that last week's session, listen to it. No no need to do that right now. You'll be all right, maybe. But uh, get last week's session, get the introduction to what we're talking about here. But we're talking about a, a, a system of thought, or as Sam put it last time, a way of reading the Bible or as Tim kind of gave us some history, a, a, uh, a system of thought that is named after a man named John Calvin from the Protestant Reformation in the 16th, 16th century. 16th century is the 1500s. And uh, we are talking about a system called Calvinism. A lot of you guys have heard of this before. But you're trying to figure out and get your arms around what it means to be a Calvinist or what Calvinists believe. And this is an invitation to Calvinism. So it's not simply I, – I, I don't want to put this as just a, here we are explaining what it is in a very neutral way. But I think all of us here sitting here would say we would like to invite people to Calvinism. It's not something that we just back off and say this is a nice little thing over here that, that some Christians believe and I happen to believe it, but take it or leave it type thing. It's something that has revolutionized our lives. It is something that is a paradigm, I put it usually. A paradigm is, is kind of a structure, a paradigm of all of our thinking whenever it comes to reading the Bible, whenever it comes to our theology. I think this, uh, what we are talking about here revolutionizes theology, revolutionizes our way of thinking, and most importantly, gets us close to a biblical view of God. 
Can you be a Calvinist, or can you not be a Calvinist and still be a Christian? Well, sure, I think so. I, I think you can not be a Calvinist and and, and be a, a very committed Christian. So we're not talking here about about if you're not a Calvinist, you're going to go to hell. We're not saying that, but what we're saying is that we believe that the way that John Calvin and the way that, that Calvinists read the Bible is, we would say, seems to be a most accurate reading of Scripture and most accurately way of thinking that depicts God as he reveals himself to us through Scripture. Yeah, and something that is very personally, from my standpoint, as an invitation to Calvinism, something that is very personally, it, it, it's a gift in a sense, a gift in the Scripture that, that we feel like we're giving. And without this gift, it's not as if you're not a Christian. It's not as if you don't love Jesus. It's not as if you, you're not following Jesus very closely like we are. But from my perspective, you're missing out on something that is so glorious and wonderful about God and about ourselves that, that your, your anxiety level of life and your salvation will be greater than the rest that Calvinism brings. So your anxiety level is greater and your joy is greater? Is that what you just said? Yeah. Yeah. So you No, would... no, your anxiety level is greater whenever you don't have this understanding. Okay. I'm just trying to try and spiritual anxiety. So this is a cure for spiritual anxiety. Your anxiety is going down, your joy is going up. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. I think you elevated both in your previous statement. So? Just wanted to be here to to help out a brother and correct him. I did not. I was listening to myself while I said it. Did I say anxiety level goes I'm higher? I'm not about to get into this uh, free-for-all this between the <laughs> two of you. Okay, here we go. Calvinism. Yes. Um, I think, Sam, that, that a good way to look at the Calvinistic system, not a perfect way, is through the uh, five points of Calvinism. Mm-hmm. I've got a few books here. Now, now, I've got this one book here. It's called Chosen for Life. And this is specifically on one aspect of Calvinism, right? Yes. This was written by Sam Storms, uh, who is here with us in studio. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, we've interviewed you about this about three years ago, three or four years ago, on Converse with Scholars uh, by uh, Crossway, put out by Crossway. But Sam wrote a book on Calvinism, The Case for Divine Election. Divine Election happens to be one aspect of Calvinism that we're going to talk about as well. But I wanted to bring our audience up to speed here that we do have a, uh, a published author on Calvinism in here. So that's nice. Uh, nice to have Sam around here. Mm-hmm. But we're going to talk about this system that... That a lot of us have probably initially learned Calvinism through, and this is the five points of Calvinism. Sam, can you overview the five points of Calvinism? Sure. Um, the easiest way and the most well-known approach is uh, through the acrostic TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Um, and TULIP is designed to enable people to remember each of the five points. Unfortunately, um, the uh, words that are represented by each of these letters are, are not necessarily helpful in some respects. They can be misleading. Yeah. So some people don't like the tulip, but we'll use it as a way of, uh, of expressing the five points. The T stands for total depravity, and that's one that some people don't like because uh, some people hear the words total depravity, and they immediately conclude that, This means every human being is as evil and sinful as he or she could possibly be. Uh, That is not the case. Uh, If that were the case, we would hardly be able to survive in our society. What it does mean is that we are pervasively um, 
um, wicked and evil in the very core of our being, that our mind, emotions, affections, our heart, our will, all aspects of, of what we are, are are affected by sin in such a way that we enter this life, apart from the grace of God, uh, hostile to him uh, in unbelief and in rebellion. Uh, so that's the notion of total depravity. And, of course, a corollary to that is the idea of the bondage of the will, which would say that because we are depraved in the depths of our being, um, our wills are um, uh, are inclined to say no to God, to reject the revelation of himself in creation and in Scripture. Uh, our wills are... Um, oriented toward self and away from Christ, and we see nothing in him that is appealing or beautiful. Then the second one is you, unconditional election. That's what my book, Chosen for Life, is concerned with. And the notion here is that since all mankind are totally depraved or um, pervasively uh, sinful, that if anyone is to be saved, it is only if God elects or chooses them um, so the notion of unconditional election is, is that before the foundation of the world, God sovereignly chose those who would ultimately inherit eternal life and come to faith in Christ. No one deserved to be chosen. All deserved only death and damnation, but God in unconditional mercy. Contrary to the, the perspective you know that you articulated briefly last week, it isn't that God looked down the corridors of time and saw who would or would not believe in Christ and respond positively to the revelation of God, and on that basis then elected or chose them. That would be conditional election. It would be conditioned upon our choice as foreseen by God. Unconditional election says that surely God can look down the corridors of time, Mm -hmm. but what he sees is total and complete unbelief. Everybody rejects Christ. Everybody is born hostile and hateful toward him. And therefore, uh, God sovereignly elects some to inherit eternal life. The L of tulip is, stands for limited atonement. And again, that's a, an adjective that many Calvinists don't like. They like to the, say definite atonement or particular atonement. But the basic point is that those whom God has unconditionally elected are the ones for whom and in whose place Christ died on the cross. He was a substitutionary sacrifice, absorbing and satisfying the wrath of God for the elect. The um, I in tulip stands for irresistible grace, and that is the notion that those whom God has elected, for whom Christ has died, the Holy Spirit will effectually or irresistibly draw to faith in Jesus. In other words, he will... Uh, at some point in their earthly existence, overcome their hate for God and replace it with love. He will overcome their resistance to the gospel and give them new life, which we call the being born again, and uh, grant them the gift of faith. And then P in TULIP, the fifth point, stands for perseverance of the saints, which says that those whom God has unconditionally elected, for whom Christ has died, whom the Holy Spirit has drawn efficaciously or irresistibly to himself, will persevere in their faith. Uh, They'll go through hard times. They might backslide. They might have seasons of extended doubt. But they will ultimately persevere or uh, endure unto the end and be saved. Hmm. So those are the five points of Calvinism as traditionally set forth. 
Okay, five points. Uh, does is Calvinism? Is there something that you might say that is? These are the all five points are the without which not of Calvinism. In other words, do we? Uh, if you're a Calvinist, do you automatically accept all of these? Or is there some that you might say, well, this one's kind of negotiable with regards to Calvinism? Um, I, we would have to acknowledge that there are a great many evangelicals, Christ-loving, God-fearing, Bible-believing evangelicals, who would call themselves four-point Calvinists, um, who would embrace T-U-I-N-P, but they would not embrace the uh, limp view of limited atonement. Um, we can throw out a name. Uh, Bruce Ware is a good example who teaches at Southern Seminary in Louisville. He's a good friend of mine. He's written extensively on the sovereignty of God. Bruce is a four-point Calvinist. Um, so there are some who would embrace the other four points, but they would contend that the New Testament teaches that Christ died universally and equally for all people, both elect and non-elect. But the atonement only applies to those who are the elect. He yes. died for all, but only the elect will have uh, it uh, satisfied in their lives. Or they will right. receive the benefits so, of so that. So Bruce atonement. would say, for example, or other four-point Calvinists, that although Christ died equally for all mankind, according to the fourth of the five points, the Spirit of God will irresistibly and effectually draw to faith in Christ's atonement only those whom God has un- unconditionally elected. And, folks, we'll talk a little bit more about that whenever we get to that uh, particular issue in these broadcasts. But um, it, it's important to see that there's there's this holistic understanding of Calvinism. There's some people that are, that are out there that would say, well, you're not really a Calvinist unless you accept all five points. And some people would say, no, well, you are a Calvinist as long as you accept maybe the four of the five points. Can you be of. a one-point Calvinist? No, I don't think so. <laughs> well. My uh, former professor at Dallas Seminary, S. Lewis Johnson, called those people whiskey Calvinists. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He says, well, they only take a fifth. <laughs> there are some, though, who actually will argue for perseverance of the saints or eternal security while denying the other four points. Yeah, well, the eternal security, some people would believe that we are secure in Christ, yet uh, all of these other ones are non-applicable. Yeah, there. I mean, many within the Southern Baptist Convention, and this isn't by me, any means all, of course, because there are many five point Calvinists who are Southern Baptists. But that has uh, that was tr- the uh, Southern Baptist tradition in which I was raised. Mm-hmm. They very strongly affirmed perseverance of the saints, but they uh, denied the other four points. I guess one of the ways to look at it, folks, is that there is somewhat of a scale in which you you travel along here, and you can become more Calvinistic with regards to your theology the more you accept with regards to these five points and the stronger you are on these five points. Like with me, what we'll end up seeing is that with the unlimited atonement, while on most days I am a person who believes in limited atonement, as you expressed the Calvinist view, there are days whenever I scratch my head, you know, I'm reading through the scriptures and I scratch my head and I'm not quite as sure as I was the day before. But with most of these other ones, like total depravity and unconditional election, I don't have that type of teetering between different ones. I find that usually happens after I've had Mexican food. Really? For some reason. The the teetering? The teetering of the L. (laughs) Okay. Mexican food, I guess it's uh, something to do with Mexico. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) But uh, might just give a little historical perspective for our listeners as well. Yeah, where did this tulip Um, stuff come from? Yeah, tulip was not invented uh, by the Calvinists. Uh, The fact of the matter is the 
the Arminians who were reacting against uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, written by Calvin, who were reacting against that system of what is called Reformed theology that emerged in the 16th century, gathered uh, in the early part of the 17th century and articulated several points of Arminianism. In fact, I think initially there were seven. And the Calvinists then came along at the Synod of Dort uh, following that and wrote a response to the many points of Arminian theology. And it was out of that response at the Synod of Dort, that's D-O-R-T if people are wondering, um, that uh, eventually the the five points um, emerged and took on the shape uh, that we now know them um, in, in the present day. So... Uh, the five points of Calvinism were actually, historically speaking, a response to the five or even more points of Arminianism. And this was <clears throat> three or four years after Calvin died, right? Or, or a dec- no, no, it was quite a bit. A decade after he died. No, mo- long after he died. Okay. Shows my uh, historical. <laughs> so I think Calvin died, was it in uh, 1564? Am yeah, I, correct? I think that's correct. And. Um, uh, the I think the Arminian, um, what's called the Remonstrance, their gathering was in about 1611, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, the Synod of Dort uh, came about a few years after that. Okay, that's what I'm thinking of. The Dort came after the Remonstrance. Yes. It is important to recognize this, folks, that uh, th- this was this was birthed. Uh, we, we had something that, that we call the Protestant Reformation, and out of the Reformation came a further systematizing of theology and thought that really could not occur in this way previously because of the institutional, what, what for lack of a better word right now, bondage of the church. Yeah. And and as uh, we went through the Enlightenment, folks, the, the age of reason, whenever we, we translated the Bible and had our own uh, Greek New Testament and studies became more prominent and the Reformation began to take a hold and people began to see salvation by faith alone and and begin to say, hey, let's let's look at all of our theology because now we can. We are not under the bondage to where we say uh, whatever the church says, that's what we must believe. And there was a birth of thought, not only in the world at large, but in Christian thought as well. And that's, that's what makes Calvin so unique, too, is that Luther is writing a lot, but most of his writing is about justification by faith. And he is so focused on that. Uh, where Calvin zooms out and says, okay, I'm going to write about justification by faith as well, but I'm also going to write about all the other doctrines of the church too and give more of a holistic, systematic uh, doctrine of the faith. Uh, Although, and again, this is something we can talk about later as well, people find it interesting. Luther was actually more a Calvinist than Calvin was. Hmm. Uh, Martin Luther was more uh, strident, if I could use that word, more uh, vigorous in his defense of bondage to the will and unconditional election and definite atonement than even Calvin was, at least in my opinion as I read them. But then, uh, like Sam used the term reformed theology, and and just give a little bit there, where uh, Calvin and Luther and Zwingli, a third fellow, uh, they were friendly, believed in the thoughts of each other, but uh, just as a side point, couldn't agree on communion, and and had a hard time agreeing on, is Christ actually in the bread, or is that just a spiritual thing, or is it a mix of the both? And so, so they actually could not come to an agreement on that, and basically 
basically split in their uh, their theology and where Lutheran theology became known as Lutheran, where Calvin's became known as Reformed theology. It is, and, and it's hard for you guys as you're listening to this, maybe for the first time being exposed to some of this, to say, okay, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that Protestantism is Calvinistic? And, and you know, sometimes we throw out this word reformed, uh, and, and that's linked to the Reformation. And what we're talking about here is within a few hundred years, a couple of hundred years after the Reformation, after Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses in 1517, um, uh, the year after the Greek New Testament was put together, which I believe is significant, uh, that, that we have the Reformation coming about so soon after the scriptures are, are, are so available. Um, it's not like the Greek New Testament wasn't available before fifteen. Well, yes, excuse me. The, the <laughs> publication, the of publication it. that made it because the printing press had just come on the scene, yeah. and so for the first time in history, you can read something that was not handwritten for the first time in history. And so with the printing press came an ability to duplicate things at a high rate, to be able to, to have the structures just grow so that thousands of people could be reading the same thing. Well, to get your thought out there, that's the key thing. I yeah. mean, you're, you're, you, if you had your thoughts beforehand, you would write them down, but they wouldn't be available to too many people. Yeah. But now we have this birth of information. Not it's, it's really like the Internet age, uh, yeah. but, but 500 years ago. I mean, the explosion of the Internet, just think that same explosion, possibly a larger explosion than the Internet came, came along in the 1500s. And that's why this is spreading. That's why Calvin writes his institutes, and they get spread around the world, get translated in languages, and thousands of people are reading them and being influenced by his thinking and saying this is how uh, I believe Protestants should interpret the Bible. And we talk about this called the Reformation. The Reformation comes about, and then we have a particular, uh, now as we look back three, four hundred years later, we have a particular variety, sometimes we'll call it a tradition, sometimes it will issue forth into certain denominations, that hold to a Reformed theology, which is defined by a Calvinistic understanding. Is, is that a good way to put it? I would think so. I mean, so, so if, we if can we say, say we're that, Reformed, is, are we saying we're Calvinistic? Yeah, I would say so. I'd say all Reformed are Calvinistic, but not, not all Calvinists are Reformed, possibly. Sam? <laughs> well, it, obviously, we'd, we'd have to define our terms, because there are some who would want to include under the title Reformed Theology more than just the issues of TULIP. They would want to include uh, a per- per particular perspective on the nature of the church, on infant baptism, um, a particular understanding of the relationship between church and state, and how the church relates to culture, and, and a number of other things. But I think in the popular mindset, and that's probably where we ought to keep it, mm. if you talk to the man on the street, the average Christian, they would probably uh, use the words Calvinist and Reformed synonymously and interchangeably, and I think that's probably a good thing. Again, there are some who want to co-opt the word Reformed for themselves and exclude uh, the others who, uh, for example, there would be some Reformed who say if you're a dispensational premillennialist on eschatology, uh, you can't be reformed. Um, and so they want to make it a, a much larger, all-encompassing mm-hmm. term. But I, I think it's best for our purposes 
that we just use the word Reformed and Calvinist interchangeably. Good, folks. People have come in here in the, Christ, the Credo House and they say, is this place Reformed? And I say, well, I happen to be Reformed in my soteriology, which means I'm Reformed with regards to salvation, which means I'm a Calvinist. But you say, I can't speak for the walls. I'm not <laughs> sure about this place. <laughs> Whenever we talk about uh, – you can talk about it in a lot of different ways. And so if you're saying, are you Reformed, Reformed with regards to what issue? Ecclesiology, the church, reformed soteriology, salvation, reformed eschatologically, the end times. And so there's a lot of different ways, but as Sam said, we're focusing on one aspect of reformed theology, and that has to do with salvation, and we're cut, we call it Calvinism. And so in that sense, it's synonymous. Let it be written, henceforth. Henceforth. And that's what we're going to talk about are these the, this tulip, this this uh, point of reformed soteriology, reformed salvation. So we're focusing on one aspect of reformed theology, call it Calvinism, and um, uh, uh, as it's been expressed through tulip. Now Jacob Arminius, uh, he, he he was this fellow. You, you'll always hear this. Whenever you talk about Calvinism, you'll also hear the term Arminianism. Now, I'm not sure if it's best to say that those are the only two options because I don't think, you know, obviously uh, Roman Catholics won't call themselves Arminians. Um, uh, Lutherans don't even call themselves uh, Calvinists. And so, you know, sometimes it gets a little bit muddy. The water gets a little bit muddy when we're talking about this. But a lot of times, and I want to introduce you to this, that there are these two competing options. Calvinism and Arminianism, and I think you do need to be familiar with that. Now, Arminius, Jacob Arminius, he was uh, a, a follower, if, I, if I'm correct, if I remember correctly, he was a student of Biza, who was a successor to kind of the, the theological chair, if you will, of Calvinism mm -hmm. uh, of his day. So Jacob Arminius was a Calvinist, but began to get into debates. I think he was assigned to debate people about Calvinism and became convinced that Calvinism was wrong and then uh, had, had a significant impact on his, in his writing and in his following and really introduced another Protestant option, which we call Arminianism. And Arminianism, I guess, if you were to take it point by point with the tulip, would stand in opposition to each one except maybe total depravity. Yes, um, Arminius aff affirmed total depravity, as did John Wesley, who was a, one of the more well-known Arminians in, in subsequent years. Uh, Arminius believed in um, the concept of original sin. What he simply said was that although we are all born into this life um, totally depraved and unable by our own will or nature to embrace the gospel that God has sovereignly restored in every human being uh, sufficient ability by which they can then respond to the gospel. It's called the doctrine of prevenient grace. It may be something we can talk about in, a, in another program. Uh, but uh, yes, Arminius affirmed total depravity, but then in a sense took it back <laughs> because of his doctrine of uh, prevenient grace in which God... Um, in a sense, uh, overcomes or reverses the effects of our depravity by granting each human being at some point in time um, 
uh, a measure of ability by which they can respond to the gospel. But then, of course, Arminius believed in conditional election, that God's choice of humans for salvation was conditioned upon his foreknowledge of how they would respond uh, to the gospel. So that'd be in opposition to the you and two level. Right. Unconditional election would be Calvinist, Arminius conditional. Right. And uh, Arminius believed in uh, uh, an unlimited atonement. He believed that Christ died and satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of every human being, both elect and non-elect. Uh, he believed that the grace of the Holy Spirit was resistible. He didn't believe in irresistible grace. So um, uh, a person could ultimately... Uh, now, a person who was... Um, uh, it's kind of hard to describe how he would have denied irresistible grace. But basically he said that um, the ultimate and decisive factor in whether or not a person believes is their own will uh, rather than uh, the effectual drawing of the Spirit. And it's it's interesting, by the way, uh, it's debatable whether Arminius believed in perseverance of the saints or not. Uh, at, in his own writings, he says that uh, he wavered uh, between believing that um, – um, a true born-again justified believer uh, would persevere unto life's end and be saved or whether they could apostatize from the faith and lose their salvation. Uh, classical Arminianism, as it developed in later years, denies perseverance. Arminius fudged a little bit in his well, own time. Well, even in the, in the Remonstrance, which, which was a decade after Arminius died, not after Calvinist died. That's what I was thinking of earlier. But the remonstrance, whenever they put forth their five points, uh, to, uh, you know, which uh, Dort was responding to, said that about perseverance of the saints, that um, it, it says here, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand, but whether they are capable through negligence of forsaking again the first beginnings of the life in Christ and again returning to the present evil world, losing their salvation, giving up their faith, of turning away from the holy doctrine which was delivered to them and of losing good consciences, of becoming devoid of grace, that must be more particularly determined out of the Holy Scriptures before we can teach it with the full persuasion of our minds. So so they're hesitating a little bit on that particular issue. Yeah, yeah. We're just not sure. We haven't studied enough, so we're not dealing with that, whether a person can lose their salvation. But point by point, folks, here, here's the deal. We've got tulip, and you've got the opposite of tulip. I don't think there's any flower or daisy that really works real well right now for, for the Armenians. Well, sometimes we, we refer to the Armenians as using a daisy, you know, where you sit and pluck the petals. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. <laughs> Cheap shot, Sam. Yeah, that is way to end of the show there. (laughs) Way to hit below the belt, man. Uh, Five points, and that's what we're going to be discussing. We're going to start next week talking about the uh, T, the total depravity, and trying to help you to understand exactly what it means when we say that we are totally depraved or we are radically depraved. And I, I think that this is the, the starting point that we have to begin with because uh, a, a full understanding of total depravity at least logically brings into light not only the, the biblical necessity of the other points of Calvinism, but also the logical necessity of them. Mm-hmm. So, guys, uh, for Tim, for Sam, we thank you for joining us. We hope that uh, this is beneficial to your understanding of Calvinism. This is an invitation to Calvinism, and uh, ultimately our goal is to help you to understand and be persuaded of these great truths of Scripture. So next week we will continue this. Until then, God bless you. 
You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.